Thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope we can continue to serve as an important source of information and entertainment during these unprecedented times. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Bitstamp, before we get started with the episode. They're the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been a cornerstone of the cryptocurrency industry and the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a matching engine from NASDAQ, the global stock exchange, and their APIs are consistently recognized as the best in the industry. Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, features live charting, deep analytical tools, and is available on web and mobile. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in to what is going to be a very special episode of The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, and I am pleased to be joined by my colleague, Ryan Todd. Ryan's back. And on the other side of the mic is the inimitable Marty Chavez, whom you might know best for being one of Wall Street's tech luminaries as the former CFO and CTO of Goldman Sachs. Shortly after Marty joined us on the show, Last time, and for the first time, his tech roots brought him back to California and the tech world to serve as an advisor to many different projects like the Digital Dollar Project and Health Tech Startup Page. Marty is perhaps among the few individuals who are uniquely positioned to opine on this health and financial crisis and juxtapose the two from his vantage point. But before we dive into that, Marty, first, thank you so much for joining the show. But please share with our audience what your journey from Wall Street has been like so far. Well, it uh, it hasn't been too many months. I retired from Goldman Sachs at the end of December of last year. So it's been almost uh, almost six months. And as for all of us, this is been a, a six months that I don't think anyone would have predicted in, in, in so many different ways. Uh, for me, there's many things that have gone according to plan, and there's been some surprises as well. Uh, mostly, I've been working on bringing myself up to the very latest on machine learning and really getting back to, back to my roots, as I, I think you know, and we talked about a little bit. Back in the late 80s, early 90s, I was working at Stanford in a, in a department that was a joint venture between computer science and the School of Medicine, applying machine learning, AI, Bayesian inference to medical diagnosis. And so in many ways, I've taken a 30-year round trip. I think 30 years ago, the compute power was just too low to even begin to address some of those interesting and difficult problems in life sciences and healthcare. And now we're beginning to be able to, and that's the context in which I've joined the boards of three companies I'm really excited about, all working in very different aspects of life sciences and applying machine learning to it. But they do share, they do share that feature of taking a really complicated system 
namely human cells, human tissues, uh, the human organism, and applying software modeling to it and uh, getting some amazing results. Well, it makes a lot of sense, right? I think even throughout your Wall Street career, you were always big on the tech, maybe a little smaller on the fin, whether you look at you know, your pioneering days in electronic trading and building out SecDB. But to my point in the intro, given that background, your decades-long career on Wall Street and your even earlier career in technology and exploring some of these nascent technologies or technologies that at the time were nascent, what are some of the themes that you have identified in this crisis? We can start maybe from an economic or financial perspective, but I'd also like you to tease out the interesting trends that you've noticed, especially in your new capacity at Page from the health or healthcare technology perspective. Sure. Well, it's become a cliche at this point to suggest that the crisis has accelerated or catalyzed many changes or transformations that were already in progress, but maybe they were in progress at such a glacial pace that we didn't actually even notice the progress. And suddenly the pandemic and the lockdown happens and it it reveals all kinds of underlying changes and underlying problems. So to give one of myriad examples, there has been really everywhere an emphasis on how we always did things. And now as we talk about emerging from the lockdown, you'll hear the conversation about how can we get back to the way things were. And I'm not sure, maybe it's just the way I am. I, I, I'm always asking myself, well, were we in an optimal state before so that we desire to go back to the way things were? Or maybe what we were doing before was just a convention or a practice or a habit or a default setting and wasn't really that great. And so I'm, uh, I'm having some, some personal experiences there, as, as are we, we all. So here's two in no particular order. I taught a course at Stanford GSB in the spring, How Software Ate Finance. It's a, it's a new course that I've been working on, on building. And uh, I, as many other educators did, had the, uh, the opportunity, not necessarily what I would have predicted or wanted, but the opportunity in a very short period of time to take the course I planned to teach uh, to Stanford Business School students in nine weeks of consecutive class meetings, an hour and 45 minutes apiece, and the opportunity to turn it into a completely online digital experience. And if nothing else, I learned a very great deal of empathy for all educators who suddenly had to deliver education online. Um, it's hard and the tools are imperfect. And what you do in a classroom doesn't necessarily work very well on Zoom. So that's one experience. And then the other experience is with Paige. Um, you can think of what Paige is doing as creating a new kind of microscope for doctors, pathologists, that is a more helpful microscope that outlines cells on 
tissue specimens on slides and says these cells might be cancerous. It literally draw, highlights them, draws a circle around them. And an application that, that Paige had envisioned, but one that really became front and center during the crisis is maybe we, we can take the entire pathologist's workflow that normally requires pathologists being in a particular facility, a clinic or a hospital with microscopes and actual tissue specimens, which is a fine way of doing things in the way we've always done it. But maybe there's another way that's even better where the slide specimens can be digitized and all of the workflow of the pathologist with these machine learning uh, tools and support systems can all become digital. And so you can have telemedicine for pathology something that was in progress, but suddenly during the pandemic, it went from being a, a nice and interesting thing that might be happening to a front and center requirement for pathologists to be able to operate remotely. I actually had my first telemedicine visit for a small, insignificant ailment, but it was something that I thought after the fact, why haven't I done this before? Why yeah. hasn't this been the norm? And, and to your point, it's going to probably, this pandemic, this crisis is going to hasten or expedite some of these developments that were ongoing and, and bring them to the forefront. And you made a really interesting point about this being a learning experience and whether it's learning about the grim realities of teaching online. And I've heard some war stories from my college roommate who is a third grade teacher and also things about the economy, right? You know, in 08, we learned how to pump Wall Street with enough liquidity to, to get through a financial crisis. But in this one, we kind of noticed how ill-equipped we are maybe to get money into the hands of everyday people, right? And I think everyone listening knows of folks who are being negatively impacted by the blind spots of our financial pipes and plumbing. And, and this has, in a sense, revealed the benefits of blockchain technology or the digital dollar project or other projects that are trying to improve Wall Street's pipes and plumbing and our economy's pipes and plumbing. From that perspective, um, is there anything you think this crisis has revealed about the way our financial infrastructure is set up. Do you find yourself thinking more about that in light of this crisis? Oh man, well, we could. We, there's so many facets to what you just described. So here's the one word I would use to summarize all these topics, which is resilience. So as you described in the financial crisis, we discovered among other things, that many participants in the financial system were running with all of their systems and their capital and their liquidity optimized, have as little capital and as little liquidity as possible and no less, because among other things, that was optimal if you were looking at returns and returns on, on equity. Why not have more leverage after all, how likely is it that your assets would decline by more than 2%? So we could have 50 turns of leverage. That, that seemed sensible once upon a time, uh, and there was certainly very little to prevent it. 
And then in the crisis, the, the regulators and the legislators very appropriately stepped back and they made big changes. And in the U.S., we have Dodd-Frank and many, many aspects of Dodd-Frank. A crucial aspect of Dodd-Frank, as implemented here in the U.S. by the Federal Reserve and other regulators, is capital adequacy, CCAR. And CCAR is really an amazing construct when you think about it. It, it required the big banks massively to upgrade their systems and processes so that they had a software model of themselves and their financial statements and how all aspects of their business might perform in a severely adverse scenario. And the Fed says, demonstrate to us over nine quarters uh, looking into the future that in a severely adverse scenario, which we give you, you will still have enough capital to continue doing what banks need to do, namely lend. So that required not only a massive increase in capital and then also liquidity, it also required a massive increase in the ability of banks to perform introspection on themselves and to have great risk management systems. Right? So that created a huge amount of resiliency that didn't exist before. And of all of the things that we've been worried about during this crisis, the continued functioning of banks has really not been anywhere on that list. And if you stop and ponder that, that's, that's an amazing result. Kudos to the regulators and to, to the banks that worked with the regulators to, to make this all happen. So we now have more resiliency. It wasn't considered optimal to have all that resiliency and then the financial crisis revealed the necessity of it. Well, I think this crisis has revealed the necessity of resilience for businesses that aren't regulated banks, right? Resilience in their supply chains and the mitigation of concentration risk and single sources of supply and all kinds of fragility that were present all over the place. And to do that, you need capital and liquidity and you don't necessarily want to make those investments because they seem annoying and expensive when the sun is shining. But when the sun goes away, you're going to really be grateful that you made those investments. So I'm thinking about what kinds of resilience we would want to have way far away from banks in all aspects of our system. And then certainly to the other topic you mentioned, I'm, I'm, I'm like all of us looking at the debates in the House and elsewhere leading up to the legislative responses to the pandemic. And when I remember thinking, whoa, it's, it's wonderful that someone's talking about ordering the Federal Reserve to create a digital dollar as a way of delivering stimulus payments uh, to households. And then also the, the sort of curmudgeon in me is thinking, great, I'll just code that digital dollar up over the weekend and then we'll have it ready on Monday to, uh, to distribute the stimulus funds, right? It's, it's a little late during a crisis like the pandemic to begin working on a digital dollar. And to your point, it's not a nice to have. It's, it's something that's essential, not just for the response during the pandemic, but for preserving the dollar status more generally as the global reserve currency. I mean, there are so many different ways we can look at this and think, oh, if only we had acted quicker or this had been in place prior to this crisis unfolding. Hindsight 
as they say, is 2020. It, it's interesting that you bring up Dodd-Frank and, and some of the regulations that, you know, went into effect following the financial crisis as, you know, bank stocks surge, as regulators now ease or unwind aspects of the Volcker rule. Um, Still yeah. far down the bank stocks. That's something I actually wanted to bring up, like with mentioning of CCAR and the recent stuff that was just passed this past week about limiting uh bank share buybacks and dividend capital disbursement, the the bank stocks haven't recovered, Frank, even with all that stuff that's been removed. Yeah, no, there's definitely, I mean, if you look at where they're trading, they're definitely not where they were prior to the crisis. But when we think about the changes that we will see, maybe it hits Wall Street, maybe they hit other sectors, as uh, you know, Marty was alluding to. If going after the banks or declawing the banks to remove the resiliency risk that you were talking about was the first order effect of the financial crisis, what is it for this crisis? Maybe we see you know regulators take action in different segments of the economy. What do you expect? Well, uh, yes, I expect that there will be regulatory action that's uh, uh, inspired precipitated by by new legislation. The regulation is a pendulum at the risk of oversimplifying between radical deregulation and then radical overregulation. And so there's an important calibration. So to just pause for a moment on Dodd-Frank, this maybe got lost in the news that you did mention. You did mention uh, changes to the Volcker rule. Uh, I would call that a minor minor change, banks being allowed to hold stakes in VC funds. Sure. To me, that's just a recognition that banks holding stakes in VC funds was never anywhere around the drivers of the problems or the causes of the financial crisis. So why did we, why did we go and touch that? That was never a particular problem for anybody. And by the way, banks could always hold direct equity stakes in fintech companies and and many banks have, have done that for a considerable period of time before, during, and after the Volcker rule. So I would call that a minor adjustment. There was a bigger adjustment to the SLR, the supplementary leverage ratio. Many had pointed out to the regulators that, that requiring banks to hold capital against Federal Reserve deposits didn't make any sense, right? That's supposed to be uh, the closest thing to riskless that exists. And so why are you capitalizing for that? And indeed, for banks to perform their functions in the depths of this pandemic, uh, the Federal Reserve realized that that having that ratio requirement was getting in the way of banks doing what banks need to do and suspended it uh, for a period of time. And who knows whether it'll ever come back as an example of, of calibrations, right? So as, as it relates to the non-financial sector, I, I don't know that we're really seeing evidence of new legislation, maybe maybe that has to wait until after the election, um, nor are we seeing a lot of regulatory action. We're still in the middle of the pandemic, really. Um, to my mind, looking at what worked well in the banking regulation after the financial crisis and asking, are there any analogies for the non-banking sector after this, this crisis in the natural world, the pandemic, I think it's super important to look for those analogies and do something about it. And I would say requiring resilience in industrial companies, which would take a different form than in banks, I think that's important. 
When the regulators first addressed resilience in the form of capital and liquidity for banks, many people said, how are we ever going to measure that? What does it mean to have the right amount of capital or excess capital for a rainy day? Super incredibly difficult problem. The amount of mental energy and work that went into that from the regulators and all the banks was colossal, hard to describe. And is it perfect? I doubt it is. But did it make banks much more resilient? There is no question that it did. I know that we can do the same thing and we need to do the same thing for non-financial companies and, and start with, you know, I would love for non-financial companies themselves to recognize the importance of resilience and create self-regulatory standards for resilience. That would naturally be my preference, but companies often don't get together and act on their own industry sector in that way. There's all kinds of problems of collective action, and this is where regulators need to step in. You know, and it's interesting, you brought up the pendulum swinging perhaps too far and then coming back eventually. It's almost like something that we see throughout history and history typically rhymes. What about on the technology side? Like we always think about how regulation can address issues in the economy or in society, but what about technology? Like, is there anything you're seeing being developed that could ameliorate some of the issues facing this country? Well, there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of green shoots that, that can help. I don't know that any of the ones I'm about to enumerate really address the deep core problem, which to my mind is, is inequality in all of its forms. And I think cultural change is hard and technology can support cultural change, but technology can all by itself create the requisite cultural change. But sure, are there are the things that can help? Absolutely. The two examples that come to mind would be in healthcare and then also in financial infrastructure. So in healthcare, drug discovery and bringing drugs to market is an immensely complicated and fraught and expensive process for all the right reasons. You want to know that a drug is safe and effective and it's being uh, prescribed and administered appropriately. And there's all kinds of risks. And something that's always, that's always been a fascination for me is imagine, this is sort of a utopian imagination. Imagine if we had a simulation in software of a digital human being. And imagine furthermore that we could even scale that up. So you had a digital simulation in software of populations of human beings, but it was all in software, but an extremely high fidelity simulation, starting at the population level and going all the way down to enzymes and molecular processes happening inside human cells. Of course, we're light years away from actually having that. But if we did have that, you could do something extremely powerful akin to what banks now do every day in the CCAR post Dodd-Frank world, which is banks simulate themselves in their software. And they ask, how would we respond? How would our capital and liquidity behave 
in a severely adverse scenario. And now that we've seen that possibility, well, we can wake up and say, thank goodness that severely adverse scenario hasn't actually happened. It's only happened in our software simulation. And back here in reality, we can do all kinds of things to mitigate that hypothetical adverse scenario. Right? That makes banks more resilient. If we could do the same thing for human populations and cells and tissues and organs, that would be incredibly powerful. If we could if we could say, well, here's a molecule, how will that molecule, if administered by mouth or intravenously, how would that molecule affect the behavior of cells and health generally defined? Wouldn't it be amazing if you could run clinical trials in software? Well, this all sounds maybe as I've described it like a like utopian fantasy, but there's a there's companies that are working on this. I recently joined the board of recursion pharmaceuticals in Salt Lake City. And this is exactly what recursion is working on. They're building a machine where they're they're taking human cells and they're applying all kinds of uh, molecules to them um, and stimulus of various kinds. And then they're taking fluoroscopic images of those cells and seeing and, and essentially getting a, a signature in an image of how a human cell changes in response to some perturbation or some stimulus. And then they can do this multidimensionally and across many kinds of compounds, interacting with many kinds of pathways inside the cell and begin to identify promising drug candidates and starting with COVID-19, starting with drug candidates that have already been demonstrated to be safe and maybe they will have some benefit uh, for treating COVID-19. Um, there's, a, there's a drug that's used successfully to treat uh, people with most muscular dystrophy. It might, according to some of these analytics, have some efficacy for COVID-19. We don't know, but it's, but it's unearthing some of these possibilities as opposed to just having to try a billion chemicals and see what works, you can guide the drug discovery process. So that's, that's one example of a technology that's in early days, but with very, very promising results. Away from healthcare, I am a, a, a huge advocate for changes in the financial infrastructure. In the course that I just taught at Stanford, the the first lecture is on money. And uh, I, I learned a lot by preparing that lecture and I combined it with things that I had experienced. Uh, but money, money is an intersubjective reality. It's something that we all agree on. And then the shared cultural agreement causes us to behave in certain ways. Right? That's, uh, to me, that is profoundly the case. And so given that, what is a dollar and in what forms does a dollar exist right now? And what do we use those different forms of dollars for? And given all the technology that we have, blockchain is one example, is do we really have the right technological implementation or fabric for money? And so I, with many people, have been doing a lot of thinking on what are the features that we would actually desire in a new implementation of the US dollar and what would be the social, economic, political, and foreign policy benefits 
of such a new dollar implementation. When you were last on the show, we kind of mused over some of these questions. You know, what is legal tender? What is money? Obviously, we talked about Bitcoin. Now that you are a bit unchained from <laughs> from Goldman Sachs in many respects, and in, in most respects, in fact, what would you say about Bitcoin? Do you think it's it's money or a form of money? Bitcoin's one of many amazing research projects that are creating invaluable learnings and lessons. And it is not money. It is a commodity. And we could then have a discussion about whether one would want to own this commodity called Bitcoin for some reasons. And I completely get why some people would, would want to. Uh, for me personally, I still own the three Bitcoin that I received as a gift about 10 years ago in a meeting with the CEO of an early Bitcoin company. He said, hey, you want to try out some Bitcoin? Here's some Bitcoin. And, and he gave me three. And it's been interesting seeing the value of my three Bitcoin, but I've never done anything with them. Um, to me, I wouldn't want to store value in Bitcoin. To me, the notion that the value depends on millions of computers running a particular protocol, um, that's just not where I would put my store of value. On the other hand, when I went through this in the class, I gathered some uh, statistics. I found them terribly interesting on what uh, the cost is of running that Bitcoin protocol. So this was at the end of middle of February. So to mine a single Bitcoin block requires guessing the nonce, which is part of the Bitcoin protocol, requires 60 sextillion guesses of a nonce. That's to mine a single block. That's a six of 22 zeros. Um, at that time, middle of February, the Bitcoin network was performing 120 exahashes per second. Um, that's 120 quintillion or 120 with 18 zeros at the end of it. And that's seven gigawatts of electricity, uh, which is 20 basis points of the world's supply of electricity. So that's about as much as the entire country of Switzerland or the entire country of New Zealand consume. And so my, my point in citing all the statistics is the kind of Byzantine agreement of the Bitcoin protocol is expensive and it might be over-engineered for most use cases. And it's just a question. I'm not asserting that it's over-engineered, but that all is a lot of energy to administer it. And then I know that the Bitcoin network can theoretically process 27 transactions per second. That's in the design in the original paper, uh, but it's actually only handling four transactions per second um, in real life right now. And compare that four transactions per second with the MasterCard network, uh, which can process 65,000 transactions per second in, in its form of, of MasterCard money, which is the, related to the, to the U.S. dollar. Uh, and so for all of those reasons, I would say Bitcoin is definitively not money, but the experience of Bitcoin 
and many other experiences, whether it's Ripple or Ethernet, and you know, you know as well as I do, there's a long list. It led me to consider, and many people are working on this, what would be uh, the desired features of a digital money? And uh, in no particular order, here, here's, here's a list. So we'd want it to be digitally native and programmable, and we can get to what, what I mean by programmable. We'd want it to be driven by APIs everywhere, APIs that are consumed, APIs that are produced. It would balance data privacy and anonymity with anti-money laundering and know your client controls. It would be nearly instantaneous for the digital dollar. I would say, and many would dispute this, that it remains under the control of the Federal Reserve. It preserves the role of the regulated banking system in money creation. That's another controversial notion. It enables end-to-end settlement and financial market infrastructure while preserving metadata about the transactions. I don't think that's controversial. Preserves the dollar status as the global reserve currency. Some will want that, some will not. Has resilience and resistance to hacking. And it would require bipartisan political will to move the idea forward. So those are some of the features that I would look for. Bitcoin doesn't have those, but Bitcoin points us in the right direction. You almost sounded like one of the sharks for a second when you said, you know, and for these reasons, I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) Ryan is probably one of our closest um, watchers of the developing, burgeoning digital dollar space. So I think he wants to jump in with a question. Sure. I'm sure our uh, audience is going to be upset that I, I'm not jumping to defend Bitcoin, but you guys, you guys hear this all the time. So let you know. Let's have our guest present his thesis for us. <laughs> Marty, when you talk about these uh, design characteristics that you'd want to see in a so-called digital dollar, a lot of the the hot button topics that we come across, and just practicality speaking, when you're thinking about whether a central bank would issue something like this comes back down to the question of would a central bank actually create a cash-like instrument for the digital world? And and would that actually be something they'd want to do? Mm. Um, like the idea of like, yes, cash does exist today. It's declining. But would that be an instrument that's, that policymakers would even want to support given the anonymity and, and other features it presents as a bearer instrument? What are your thoughts on that front? So... There are many central banks that have been uh, speaking and publishing uh, voluminously on this topic. I'll just cite as one um, whose uh, publications I happen to have read, but I know there are many others, the Reichsbank of Sweden. And there in Sweden, as you know, the use of cash has uh, been declining in the traditional nearly completely anonymous bearer instrument. Um, it's, it's been disappearing fast in Sweden. And uh, the Reichsbank even cites a concern that they have that someone else, and you can imagine might have been Bitcoin, I don't think it is right now, but Libra and some imagined future state, someone else steps in and says, well, use our thing. And for Sweden in particular, Um, that's going to be uh, a challenge because whatever someone else comes up with, some global multinational maybe tech uh, firm or consortium, 
is unlikely to be the kroner, the Swedish kroner unit of account. And so it's going to have variability. And, and then there's also concerns about transmission to monetary policy. So they've been very, very clear that they've said, we need to create the electronic equivalent of kroner. And they've been very thoughtful in what happens with seniorage and in that world. And you can read their publications. They're, they're, they're fascinating. Um, to me, the central concern is data privacy. That's the tech term we would use. Um, but finance uses other terms that, that are related to the, the umbrella concept of data privacy, such as know your client and anti-money laundering, knowing where the money came from. And, uh, and those concerns are well, well documented. And we often talk as if it's one or the other. You have the nearly completely anonymous bearer bond known as a cash currency, cash Federal Reserve note. And then at the other end, people talk, I think, in terms that are very loosely and sometimes carelessly defined about the anonymity of Bitcoin, as we know, Bitcoin's not anonymous, it's pseudonymous, right? So, you you know, with a little bit of data mining, um, some have claimed that you can just look at the entire uh, Bitcoin blockchain and look at who transferred what to whom, and you can you can develop some, some pretty detailed thoughts on those actual Bitcoin addresses to real life people. And so it's not clear how anonymous it was. My... Wonderful five-year-old has just joined us. He's going to be very, very quiet. Yes. Why can't I make the windmill walker? You can, darling. As soon as Papa finishes the please, can I make it right now? Yes. Go right ahead, sweetie. All right. Sorry about. Sorry about that. I think we're all experiencing that reality. No worries. But uh, clearly, uh, banks are thinking about this. And, and where I was, is I was saying that we, we're used to thinking of uh, uh, cash instruments as completely anonymous. And then bank accounts as completely controlled. Mm-hmm. And then we put the burden on the bank to know where the money came from when it was accepted as a deposit. And really, what, we, what I would encourage us all to think about is the continuum between the two. And there are techniques, they're really at the frontiers of computer science, but they're fascinating on data privacy, right? So differential privacy has been around for a while. Newer techniques, homeomorphic encryption, secure, multi-party computation, federated learning, much more late breaking, but allow you using cryptography to choose on the spectrum between absolute privacy, encryption, obfuscation, to hey, everything is out in the clear and everybody can see it. And so it really becomes a sociopolitical choice. What is the right way to balance these two things? And I I didn't get into this in the desiderata I just gave you for a US dollar, but I think it'd be incredibly important to have an open source implementation of this digital currency with the features I described, where somebody, presumably the Federal Reserve in the case of the US, can adjust that knob between the one spectrum of total anonymity and total certainty about where the money came from and potentially provide different versions of a US dollar, just as we have different versions right now, right? What's in your checking account is not actually US dollars, but most of us make and receive payments using 
these bank accounts as the instrument, right? You could have multiple instruments that are related to the digital dollar that have different features of data privacy. All of this is possible with technology and it's hard and it hasn't been done yet. It's fascinating stuff. What about when you consider kind of stepping back from that, it is possible. Uh, the tech does exist. Uh, like a lot of the stuff, like when you even just consider just real-time payments capabilities and, and the things that the Fed wants to release on that front, and even the conversation that's been formed over the past few weeks uh, in terms of Fed accounts or this idea of retail uh, deposits at the Fed level in order to disperse the stimulus payments and then the next round of that. Um, when you think about the policy response to, to some of the, these discussions that have come out, largely stem from, from the crisis this year, I'm kind of bringing this back full circle, but do you think that there's actually a, a bipartisan reception to this idea like that you've seen in your conversations with the Digital Dollar Project and, and the work that they've done so far to date? So it's interesting is that when I when I uh, prepared my first lecture on money for the Stanford course, I, I had written uh, very tough to pass given politiza politicization of monetary policy and political gridlock. Um, but I, I think to your point, that is that is changed. There is there is openness to it. There, I detect in the statements and, and publications of the Federal Reserve uh, reticence to go full steam ahead with retail CBDC, central bank digital currency, retail digital U.S. dollar as a unit of account in ledger format, right? So, so right now, just to very quickly review, digital CBDC exists at the wholesale level and it has existed for a long time. And right. it is the master account of a regulated bank at its uh, nearby Federal Reserve System Bank, right? So the question is really, you know, do you want to extend that all the way out to the to the retail level? And I don't personally think that in the U.S., you or I are going to be able to hold digital U.S. dollar in a wallet on account directly with the central bank the way our banks can do and are required to. I don't think you and I are going to be able to do that anytime soon. I don't see that coming. And I mean, you or I, or any non-bank. Right. Uh, the Digital Dollar Project, where I'm one of many advisors, is is going in a very different direction. And I encourage you to look at the white paper. It's It's been, it's had thousands of downloads and, uh, and uh, a lot of people worked uh, really hard on it. A lot of brain power went into that. And they're going in a very different route, which is a, a tokenized uh, unit of money that is not an account um, and with the Federal Reserve and can, in a way I described earlier, have digital privacy built into it. One of the concerns that banks have had with Bitcoin and with digital currency generally is in know your clients and anti-money laundering, right? So banks have, in the current implementation, they've had to uh, they're on the hook for knowing where the money came from. They're not on the hook for knowing all the people or organizations or institutions that have ever held this money since the time it was issued, right? right. But, but Bitcoin actually has that. The blockchain lets you see it all the way back. And so banks have been very concerned. Would they be held accountable 
for everything that has ever happened to some digital currency since the moment it was issued. That's sort of an impossible and mind-numbing order of business, right? And so, so the question is, can you have tokenized central bank money? And that's what the Digital Dollar Project white paper describes. And who would issue it and how would it enter the system? And who would build the software? And what kinds of calibrations and knobs would that software have on it? And who would set those calibrations? And as a result of what kind of process? I think those are the interesting questions that, that need to be answered and, and people are answering them. And I think to the extent they're answered satisfactorily, I can actually see a bipartisan legislation to make it possible. And it, it's possible that even with the legislation and regulatory framework that currently exists, that um, the Fed finds uh, the right design, the Fed could uh, could do it. The, the, the Fed's ability to create currency is um, is very broad, and it has a very broad license under the Federal Reserve Act. And it's an open question as to whether they even need more legislation to, uh, to make it happen. Ryan, I, I love how you always dive into the political dynamics of this debate. So often we're thinking about the technology or what makes one version of money more efficient than another, but there are these political dynamics that are also in play and Wall Street's in play too. None of us really have a crystal ball to look into the future and see whether to Marty's point, we will have a tokenized dollar or whether or not we'll all have, you know, wallets with the Fed or maybe we'll all be transacting vis-a-vis stable coins, maybe even Facebook's Libra, if that ever launches in some at some point in the future. But let's focus, I guess, on the digital dollar, a tokenized version of the dollar. From Wall Street's perspective, Marty, what does that mean? What does that look like for market structure? In conversations I have with folks on the street, you know, when we think about either blockchain or tokenization, things like improved liquidity are, are brought up or instant settlement. Where do you see it actually having an impact if we just focus on digital dollar? Sure. So just you, you mentioned stable coins, so I can't resist the, the uh, temptation. <laughs> no, go ahead. Say, I'm an extreme skeptic on stable coins. Uh, Hot take. Uh, my, my view is- <laughs> Great. Yeah, let's start there. Stable. $10 billion yeah, dollars in issuance, <laughs> this, in supply rather. $10 billion is, um, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not even a drop in the ocean compared to <laughs> the size of the Fed's balance sheet. But um, stable coins are stable right up until the instant that they're not stable. Uh, stable coin is a currency board, right? And uh, the history of currency boards is a dark history, right? Of any currency peg that's ever existed. Uh, just to give one example, there was a time in my life when I uh, was at Goldman and I personally was working on a lot of business in Latin America uh, and I got to go to Brazil and Argentina all the time. And I remember uh, you could go to an ATM in Argentina and you take out $100 and it would ask you, do you want pesos or dólares? And you could just press a button and it'd give you one or the other and they were, they were stable. They were one for one for a very, 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 very long time because people believed that the currency board was doing whatever it took and no one knew exactly what that was to keep them stable. And then it blew up in absolutely spectacular fashion. And 
There are many pegs that exist today, and some have worked well and persisted for a long time, and some that everybody regarded as a fact of life, as an axiom of the universe, like the Swiss franc euro peg. Uh, one day you wake up and it's gone. And so uh, I don't see how you get around it. I think well, there's many... A- Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I was going to say there's historical evidence of that, right? You know, you look at things like Tether and other stable coins, they haven't always held on to that peg, nor have no, they always been backed one to one. Well, it, 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 backed one to one is a very easy thing to say, <laughs> and it's a very hard thing to do, right? When you get into the gory details, for instance, of how Libra might be backed, and you know, Libra is now going through a Swiss regulatory framework, right, which definitely limits the things that that Libra could use to to back itself in one for one, but does have some choices, including things that aren't just central bank currency, because even when we got central bank currency, what form does it exist in, right? Is it a master account with the Federal Reserve? Okay, that's one kind, and and I I can get comfortable with the operational risk associated with that master account with the Federal Reserve branch. But as soon as you move away from that and you start talking about holding sovereign bonds, well, now you're in a very different world. And then when you start talking about owning agency bonds, that is, again, yet a different world. And everybody's going to be looking for that yield. And there's going to be settlement. And settlement is complicated. And suddenly you realize one for one, which sounds really simple, is massively complicated. And so... One of the things that excites me about the tokenized U.S. dollar that the Digital Dollar Project is advocating is it's a dollar. It's not something that's sort of kind of more or less like a dollar, except when it's not. It's just a dollar, right? And you brought this up in passing. There's many consequences for the banking system, but here are two off the top of my head. One of them that's super exciting is if you look at you look at settlement, um, it's not for everybody, but I did do an entire lecture on, on settlement. I find it incredibly <laughs> fascinating. And, and it's a, we'll have to get the link a, for our listeners. It's as, complicated, it's as complicated as anything, right? One thing I learned growing up on the, on, in, the, in the front office, thinking about market price risk, and you know, that seemed to be where all the excitement was, but for truly arcane and idiosyncratic and complicated risk, it looked no farther than something that ought to be simple, like the settlement of a U.S. Treasury bond trade, right? It's a mind-numbingly complicated, and I don't think that anybody understands all of the exact steps that happen in that one day settlement cycle. And a lot of things go wrong with equity trades, getting the settlement in US from three days down to two days was an incredibly complicated project. And it's still two whole days. You can trade in microseconds, and then it still takes two whole days to settle. And that incredible impedance mismatch many orders of magnitude between two days on the one hand and 10 microseconds on the other, you can accumulate a lot of erroneous trades, as we saw with the Knight Capital event in 2013, in between, (laughs) but before you actually, your bank account actually shows the dollars leaving days later, right? And that's a source of instability. So if you can, can shorten the delivery versus payment cycle down from days to seconds or milliseconds, 
because you can deliver against a digital dollar, you need both the security and the dollar to exist in native digital tokenized format. But if you can do that, if you can get them into native digital tokenized format, you can do an atomic transaction where one side gets the digital form of security and the other side gets the digital dollar. And either that happens together or nothing happens. No fails, no breaks, no half open trades. That would be an incredible boon to liquidity and incredible reduction of operational risk. What do you think about the recent proposal by Brian Brooks, the sort of payment 2.0 framework that would allow non-banks or those who issue stable coins more bank-like approvals? Have you have you noticed that or looked into that? Yeah, I have. Um, I <laughs> I'm look. I I, I worked in a wonderful bank for a really long time. And so I'm going to have a certain point of view. Does it doesn't mean I'm right or wrong. Um, I, uh, one of the things I, I would say in my, the course I just taught really to be provocative, but also I'm quite serious of it about it is the future of FinTech is banks. That's something I would say, right? So that banks are going to have to be digital and they're going to have to be digitally native to survive. And then there will be entities that are not banks. And this is an area in which I'm, I do have a binary worldview. You're either doing things that banks get to do and take deposits and originate loans, or you're outside of that capability. And then you're calling a bank via API to do the things that banks do. And if we look at many of the FinTech companies, including those that are doing digital lending, you're, you're seeing uh, a fascinating ecosystem develop where they will work with banks such as Cross River Bank to do some of the things that banks need to do. And then one could ask the question of, well, maybe you should just be a bank or you should buy a bank or maybe it's a stable configuration where you call a bank by API and the bank does things that API that the banks get to do. And so one of the theses that I've been working on is that the entire ecosystem of finance is developing around which APIs are you producing and which APIs are you consuming. And if you want to survive, I'd encourage you to be a world-class producer of some services or products encapsulated as an API and an astute consumer of APIs provided by others with the requisite service level agreements so that you've got stability in your business and the regulatory boundary will equal the API boundary. And you can see many examples of this evolving setup. The Apple credit card is one example of exactly how that works, where Apple isn't a bank or a bank holding company, doesn't wish to be, and is calling by API a bank, in this case, Goldman Sachs, that is happy to have the regulatory obligations and privileges that come with being a regulated bank. And, that's the that's the ecosystem I see evolving 
it's possible that there will be new regulatory charters and regimes and frameworks for for this maybe a, an intermediate ground between a regulated bank and something that's completely unregulated. I could imagine multiple tiers of the ecosystem developing that way. I'm not sure that that's necessary. I think you need the regulated tier and the unregulated tier. And then there will possibly be DeFi doing something in the background of all of this, but that, that'll be a story for part two. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think someone on the other side of the mic had a, had a windmill or something to build. And Marty, we want to be respectful of your time. This has been a really unique, interesting conversation. And, and Marty, we appreciate the different type of perspective that you offer from your new vantage point and also gleaning on your decades long career in finance and your earlier career in technology. And we're excited to have you back in that world and hope to talk to you again soon. I uh, appreciate the invitation. I, I always feel smarter after we engage in these discussions and learn some things. And so thanks for having me on the show. Our pleasure. I'd like to give our sponsor Bitstamp a big thank you. The original global cryptocurrency exchange. Bitstamp is built for professional traders, yet intuitive enough for any investor. You can use Bitstamp's advanced trading interface trade view to execute your strategy or instantly buy crypto in seconds when the opportunity strikes all from your computer or mobile device bitstamp prides itself on delivering unmatched customer service with a human touch their global customer care team is available around the clock via telephone email and social media when you contact them you'll always speak to an actual person not a bot you can download the bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro.